0: But well, what we have before us today in these few verses is a hymn, a hymn about Jesus, and it is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible about Jesus. It's sort of like we are looking at the Swiss Alps of Christology. This is sort of the high point throughout the Bible that teaches us about who Jesus is, and it really helps us to address that question, the question, who is Jesus. If you're taking notes today, that's the title of this sermon, Who is Jesus? Now, that's a question that is answered many ways among non-Christians, people who do not believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, people who do not take seriously what the Bible says about Jesus. They answer the question, who is Jesus, in many different ways. Uh, What are some of the answers that you've heard to that question? From non-Christians, the question, who is Jesus? You can go ahead and just throw them out to me. Let me, let me see what answers you've heard to that question before. Good man. A good man. That's very popular to hear. A prophet. a prophet. That's a popular answer to the question, who is Jesus? Teacher. A teacher. Carpenter's son. Carpenter's son, yes. Everybody's like, man, we just ran out of our entire clip. Our ammo's gone right now. Savior. Mary Ann, we're cheating now because that's our response to the question, right, as Christians. Non-Christians aren't going to say that. But you're right, and we're going to get there, absolutely. Savior. But it is answered so many different ways from non-Christians. Jesus is a great moral teacher, or as it was mentioned, he's a prophet. Uh, Jesus is one path to God. Some people are comfortable saying that. You've probably heard Jesus is a worthy example to be followed. Perhaps you've heard Jesus is a myth. Now, if you're a Christian, which most of us in this room are, you're, you're listening to those answers right now, and you're saying to yourself, that's not true. You want to say what Marianne said. You want to say he's he's our Savior, or he's, he's God, or he's Lord, or something like that. Well, the Christians in Colossae, the Christians to whom Paul wrote this short letter that we're reading, they were being threatened by demeaning views of Jesus as well. New Testament scholar Don Carson suggests that the false teachers, and I quote, thought that Christ was no more than a beginning. To go on to spiritual maturity, it was necessary to follow their rules and their practices. So Jesus was important to the false teachers in Colossae. But he functions sort of like a beginning, a starting point for the spiritual life, for the journey of knowing God and growing up into who you're supposed to be. But if you really want to get all the way, if you really want to make progress, it's going to be Jesus plus our rules. Jesus plus our practices that we want to put in front of you. And so Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, upon hearing these demeaning views about Jesus, says to himself, that's not true. And he picks up his pen, and he offers these young believers a fuller picture of who this Jesus actually is. And guess what? It's mind-blowing. It really is. So, here's the big idea of the passage that we read. Here's the big idea of the Christ hymn. You ready for it? Christ is preeminent over all things. Christ is preeminent over all things. Now, if you are like me, you're going preeminent. Okay, okay. what exactly does that mean? Rather than give you a definition, I want to do this. I want to share with you all of the synonyms that the thesaurus gives for the word preeminent. And as I read this, just think about Jesus being all of these things over all things. Here, Here it goes. Here's the thesaurus for preeminent. Greatest, leading, foremost, best, finest, chief, outstanding, excellent, distinguished, prominent, eminent, important, major, star, top, top tier, topmost, famous, renowned, celebrated, illustrious, towering, supreme, superior, exceptional, unrivaled, unsurpassed, unequaled, incomparable, matchless, peerless, unmatched, transcendent, the goat. Okay, I added the last one. Jesus is preeminent. That's the idea of what Paul wants to communicate here. He is over all, above all, greater than all, towering over everything and anyone else. And the way that Paul wants to explain that to us is in two ways in this passage. First, he wants to show you and, and me as the readers here that first Jesus is preeminent over the creation, over creation itself. That's verses 15 through 17. So let's begin to unpack that. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So there are two titles here that Paul ascribes to Jesus. He's the image of God, and he's the firstborn over creation. Now, the way that Paul shows us that Jesus is preeminent is first shown to us here because Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And what that literally means is that Jesus is preeminent. It means that he ranks above or that he is supreme over creation. Okay, put that away. We'll get to that in one second. So Paul is saying he's preeminent over creation because that's what that literally means. But also he's going to show us that Jesus is preeminent over creation because these verses that we just read make the audacious claim that Christians make, namely that Jesus of Nazareth is God. That he is God in human flesh. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. Now before Jesus was born in that manger 2,000 years ago, God had in fact revealed himself to his people, the Jewish people, in a lot of different ways. God revealed himself to them through various experiences that they had with him. For instance... You'll remember that God led his people, the children of Israel, through the wilderness by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, which showed them his personal care and his guidance for them. Or think about this, God fed them with manna while they were in the wilderness, like angel cakes coming down from heaven every day that they got to eat. And this showed them that God would provide for their needs. God smashed their enemies in pieces, people who hated them and were threatening them. God destroyed their enemies and he performed miracles and signs and wonders which revealed much about his power. At times he even struck down those who violated his laws to teach them something of his holiness and of justice. And then of course as time progressed he eventually gave them his word the Old Testament, which revealed so much more to them about who God actually is. But all of these things, plus a million others, only provided a shadowy glimpse into the character and the essence of who this God is that loved them and cared for them. After all, as John the gospel writer states, no one has ever seen God. That's why in verse 15, Paul calls God the invisible God. No one has ever seen God. God the Father has never been seen by any human being who has been tainted by sin. And so prior to Jesus coming, God was largely hidden from his creation. And then something changed. 2,000 years ago, at that first Christmas, all of this Change. No longer would God be distant from his creation, but instead God would dwell among them. Jesus Christ, the carpenter from Nazareth, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, in Jesus Christ, the nature and the being of God have been perfectly revealed. The invisible has become visible. That's part of what Paul is getting at. When he calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. After John in his gospel said, no one has ever seen God, this is John 1.18. He went on to write, the only God who is at the Father's side, this is a reference to Christ, has made him known. So nobody had seen God, but Jesus, who is also God and at the Father's side, has made God known known. In the historical person of Jesus Christ, God has revealed himself to us. Jesus is not just a teacher. Jesus did not just show up to teach us a couple new things about who God is. Jesus was and is, in fact, God become man. Now, many of us good church folks who, like me, were raised in the church are sitting through everything I've said so far. We're just nodding along going, yeah, that's right amen, and then we're probably thinking to ourselves, teach me something I don't already know, like, come on, pastor, give us some new information here, or maybe you're thinking to yourself, what should I have for lunch after church today, or you're thinking, is his head naturally that shiny, or does he shine his head, and then you're thinking, that doesn't even make sense, what would that mean to shine his head, of course that's not true, but think about this. To the first people who read this, this was mind-bending. This was stretching their mind further than their minds could be stretched, almost to the point of snapping. This was mind-bending. And it was massively important for these young Christians. Why? Remember that Paul is writing this letter to people who are being told that there are a number of things that they need to do in order to become more spiritual or in order to have a more intimate relationship with God, with the invisible God. And, And so Paul, in response to that, says this, hmm, Jesus is God. And so, all of your hopes all of your ambitions and goals, spiritually and otherwise, will only be realized in Jesus. And if you truly hope to be intimate with God, if you really want to know God, the only solution for that is Jesus. You don't have to look to the left. You don't have to look to the right. You don't have to look up. You don't have to look down. You have to look to Jesus. That's it. And so this really mattered for the first audience, and it still really matters to us. Now, admittedly, at first glance, the rest of verse 15 seems to be undermining my entire argument, <laughs> everything that I've said up to this point, because Jesus here calls, or Paul here rather, calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Now, this term firstborn, firstborn has caused some people to conclude That Jesus was the first created being. In other words, before God created the universe, before God created a planet called Earth, God started by creating Jesus and then used Jesus to create the rest of creation. In fact, if you have a Jehovah's Witness, show up to your door or greet you on your campus and talk to you, this is exactly what they will say about Jesus, the first created being. Well, certainly, firstborn can and often does mean the first to be born. However, that is not the only thing that it can mean or does mean throughout the canon of Scripture. In the Old Testament, for example, the nation Israel was called the firstborn, even though they were not the first nation on earth. Exodus 4.22 says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Additionally, additionally, and more significantly, in Psalm 89, which is a messianic psalm, meaning it's about the Messiah Jesus, in Psalm 89, 27, it calls the future Messiah the firstborn of the kings of the earth, even though he would not be the first ever king on earth, obviously. And in that verse, the meaning of firstborn is explained. It should be on the screen, but it goes like this. God is speaking in this psalm, and he says, I will make him, the Messiah, the firstborn, what does that mean? Here's the explanation. The highest of the kings of the earth firstborn in that usage then has nothing to do with your birth order or the order that you were born, but rather it has to do with your rank or your position in the world. And this is certainly the sense that Paul is meaning here in Colossians 1.15. We know this beyond a shadow of a doubt because of the way that Paul qualifies all of this in verse 16. He gives these two titles for Jesus, And then he gives an explanation in verse 16 by beginning with the word for, which means because. So he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over creation because, check it out, verse 16. Because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. In this verse, we see that everything that you can think of that is in the created category was created by or in, depending on your translation, Jesus Christ. He says all things, whether they're heavenly or earthly, whether they're things that you can see like each other or things that you cannot see, like particles. He says thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, which is a reference to even angelic or demonic beings. And he says that all things were created by Jesus. What this means is that Jesus is the one responsible for the creation of everything that has ever had the experience of being created. If then all created stuff was created by Jesus, Jesus himself could not be created. Think of it like this. If you had a box and you just started saying, let me just think of all the created stuff out there. Oh, the Milky Way galaxy, you stick that in the box, people, plants, animals, uh, atoms, you just start putting everything that's ever been created into the box. Paul says, Jesus made everything in the box, So Jesus isn't in the box, he's the one who made everything in the box. Everything that has ever been created was created by him, thus he is excluded from the category of being made, or being created. John 1, 3 makes the same point. The Apostle John says this, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So all the made stuff. Jesus was responsible for that. How then could Jesus have been made? You can see from this verse that when Paul calls Jesus firstborn, he clearly does not have in mind the first creature ever created. Instead, his point is what I've been trying to say, namely that Jesus is preeminent over creation. And next, notice that not only was everything made by him, but it was made for him That's the end of verse 16. What this means is that Jesus is not just the cause of creation, he's the reason for it. Everything that exists in the universe exists to bring glory to Jesus Christ. It is all made for him. He's the point of all of it. Creation is for his glory. And the reason why this is a big deal is because everywhere else that the Bible talks about what creation is for and who it's supposed to bring glory to, it is talking about God. Creation exists for God. He created it, and it's all about Him. Here's Romans eleven thirty six, speaking of God. For Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now, Romans is also written by Paul. So here in Colossians, he's saying, for through him and by him and to him, speaking of Jesus, are all all things. It's all for Jesus' glory. Then he goes and he writes in Romans about God, and he says the exact same thing about God. Is Paul confused? No, Paul's a gifted theologian. And Paul understands that when we're talking about Jesus, we are talking about God. We are talking about the second person of the triune God. And so Jesus is being put on the place of God by Paul in Colossians chapter 1. Finally, verse 17 adds one final line of reasoning to show how Jesus is preeminent over creation. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now the all things refers back to the all things he just talked about in the previous verses. It's everything, and Paul says Jesus is before all of that stuff, right? He created it all. In other words, Jesus is the first principle. Jesus is the first cause. Everything is entirely dependent on Jesus, and so verse 17 says he holds it all together. Jesus holds all things together. He is Not only responsible for creating everything, but he's responsible for sustaining everything. Jesus is the ultimate reason that planets are still orbiting. Jesus is the ultimate reason that the sun has not burnt out yet. Jesus is the ultimate explanation as to why your heart and my heart are beating right now without batteries. Jesus is the ultimate explanation for how a baby is formed in the womb of its mother. Jesus is the reason why rain falls down and waters the earth, why plants grow up into crops for food. Jesus is responsible for all of this, plus a billion other created things that you can think of. Jesus is responsible for creating and sustaining all of it. Are you beginning to grasp the magnitude of what Paul is writing about Jesus of Nazareth? Are you starting to sense the gravity of it? Paul's understanding about Jesus goes quite further than our Muslim friends who say he was a great prophet. Paul would say, yeah, 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 that's great. That's a good start. He is a great prophet plus the creator and the sustainer of everything. That's who Jesus is according to the Bible. He is God in human form. So in response to the view of these false teachers in Colossae who believe, yes, Jesus is important, and in response to many of our friends and family members who would say, sure, he seems important, He's a great example, or some of the other things that we talked about. Paul would say, Jesus is over all. It's all about him. Now, at verse 18, we're going to turn a corner. Paul takes another step. And now what he wants to declare to you and me is that Jesus is also preeminent Over the new creation. And I'm going to unpack that for us in just a moment. But let's read these verses again to get our minds back into the text. He says, and... So now he's adding some new information. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on heaven or or whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross notice that paul starts talking about something else first he was talking about the creation now he's talking about the church and before it was that jesus is before the creation so he he made it And he's the firstborn over it. And now he wants to say Jesus is before the church. And he's firstborn over it. He rules over it. So there's a shift that takes place here. And what I want to show you is that when Paul announces that Jesus here in verse 18 is the head over the church. His point is not simply that Jesus is in charge of all of these nonprofit corporations in California that we call churches. Or that Jesus is in charge of all of the denominational structures in Christendom that seem to have authority over local churches. What Paul is actually announcing here in verse 18 is that Jesus has authority. He is the head over the new creation. He says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Paul is not being redundant here. He's not simply stating what he just said in the previous verses, that Jesus is before creation. He's saying that he is the beginning now in in verse, where am I, 18 or 19 here? Verse 18, he's saying that he is the beginning of something else. And that began with his resurrection from the dead. And this something else is taking shape right now in the people that belong to Jesus, i.e. the church. What is this reality that Paul is pointing to? It's what the scriptures call the new creation. What do I mean by the new creation? In Genesis chapter 3, we see the original sin. And when Adam and Eve, our first parents, disobeyed God and they sinned against our creator, that that decision, that moment in time plunged God's perfect and beautiful and righteous and just creation into darkness and disarray. Sin brought death into the creation and it spoiled God's good world. But what was God's response to Genesis chapter 3? Did God just scratch this project? Did he kind of crumble up the paper and throw it into the trash bin and say, I'm going to start over and do something different? I'm over these people. Answer? No. God loves his creation and he's committed to its rescue and its renewal. And so right there in Genesis 3 verse 15, God enacted a divine rescue plan to deal with sin and death and to undo all of the consequences in his creation. Now, this will be fully and finally realized at 1 p.m. today. No, I'm just kidding. This will be fully and finally realized at the new creation, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah prophesied about this back in Isaiah 55, or 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And then if you go to the end of your Bible... Revelation chapter 21, the Apostle John has a vision of things to come. And in Revelation 21, he actually gets to see the new heavens and the new earth. And here's what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And all of the surfers said, ah. Verse 2. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is when the new heavens and the new earth are fully realized. When does it happen? Well, it happens at the return of Jesus. If you want to look up a passage about that, 2 Peter 3:10 through 13. 2 Peter 3:10 through 13 talks about when this happens. When Jesus Christ returns, The new heavens and the new earth will come with him. Everything that sin is spoiled in this world, everything that is wrong is going to be made eternally right. But here's the important thing to know. Let's not just get lost thinking theoretically about the future. Here's the important thing to know. The new creation that we're talking about was inaugurated or kicked off at the first coming of Jesus. When Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago, what Jesus did through his life, through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection from the grave actually kicked off the new creation. The new creation now, right now, as you and I are living and breathing, is, is breaking out across the world. Jesus triumphed over sin, he conquered death, and now he shares his resurrected life, eternal life, with every single person who would believe in him. This adds depth to what is meant when we who belong to Jesus are called a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We love this verse. This is a very well-known verse, but think of it in this context. Paul here says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so, let's make this really, really local for us right now. The realities of the new creation are right now, at this moment, being experienced and being seen in the church. They're being seen and they're being experienced right now in the church And the way that we live and the community that God builds together in His church is a foretaste of the new creation. Literally, it is a foretaste of heaven. This is incredible. And this has so many applications. In a culture of outrage, for example, we, family, listen, we, are a place of peace and patience and kindness. In a time of cancel culture, where one mistake you made in your life destroys your life, destroys your career, destroys your family, we are a place of grace and forgiveness and second chances. In a time of tribalism, political tribalism, ethnic, racial tribalism, we in the church are a diverse community of backgrounds and experiences and colors and language that is united as the people of God, loving one another, ministering to each other, serving each other. In a day and age where justice is not always meted out and injustice runs rampant, we get to be a place that people actually get to experience justice. There's no partiality among us. We don't give preferential treatment to certain people and not to others. And so Paul is seeking to show that Jesus not only created and sustains the world, but that Jesus is the linchpin of the new creation too. In other words, God's entire cosmic plan, creation and new creation hinges on Jesus. And this means that in everything, and Paul quite literally means everything, creation, demonic power, sin, death, over all of it, in everything, Jesus is preeminent. It's amazing. Now, with one final sentence, verses 19 and 20, they are one sentence. Paul ties all of this together. And he brings home the conclusion. Why is Jesus preeminent over literally everything? Look at the start of verse 19. He uses that word for again. So he's going to explain that. Why is Jesus preeminent over literally everything for or because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. In him and through him. Why is Jesus preeminent over everything? Because of his person and his work. His person, he says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now Think about that. In the Old Testament, God was pleased to make his home in the temple. But at the incarnation, at that first Christmas 2,000 years ago, God was pleased to make a home in human nature. God became man in Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus is not part God. He's not one God among multiple gods. Paul says the fullness of, of deity was pleased to dwell in him. Now, that word fullness is really important. Again, these false teachers are threatening this church to believe that to experience fullness, you needed Jesus plus some other things. And Paul says God's fullness is bound up in Jesus Christ. He alone is the source of our spiritual life and health. So Jesus is preeminent in everything because of his person. He's fully God and fully man, but also because of his work, which is verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross 2,000 years ago? Oh, you know, just cosmic redemption. No big deal. All things, heavenly things, earthly things, Everything reconciled, redeemed through Jesus. What does reconciliation mean? That's a big word. Well, if two married people are separated and they've got issues going on between them, if they can address those things and fix that and come back together, we would say that they have reconciled. So the idea of reconciliation is that there's a divide, there's a separation, there's some some issues there that are keeping two parties apart. And Paul here says that in Jesus and through the cross of Jesus, God is bridging the divide. God is bringing together all things. Because again, we need to understand that when sin entered into the creation, it did not just impact us. Yes, Adam and Eve experienced a curse in Genesis chapter 3. But don't forget the ground and produce were cursed as well. And some of the produce is still cursed today like peas and beets, amen? (laughs) I remember when I was a kid, I hated peas and my brother loved them. And my mom did not believe me when I was trying to tell her as a little five-year-old, I hate these, they make me sick. And so she said, I'll give you 50 cents if you put some peas in your mouth. That was a ton of money when you're six years old back then. 50 cents, let's go for it. So she gave me not just like a tiny little spoon, but a tablespoon full of peas. And I remember my hand was shaking. And I'm just staring at all the peas, and I'm like, okay, just quick, and I get that money. And it touched my tongue, and the second it did, the gag reflex just kicked in, and I just hurled right there on the table. And the coolest thing happened. From that day forward, every time my mom cooked peas, there was a mysterious blank spot on my, ta- on my plate where I didn't get the peas. It was awesome. It just took that one moment of suffering. But we need to understand that, again, all of creation is disjointed because of sin. All of creation is alienated from God. But the work of Jesus is the key that unlocks cosmic reconciliation. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8, and we're almost done. Here's verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Paul is saying that all of creation shares in that groaning that we experience because things are not the way that they're supposed to be in our lives but it's not just us that feel that all of creation is living under this alienation between itself and its creation or its creator and so in colossians 1:20 paul explains that god has reconciled all things to himself by making peace through the blood of jesus cross at the cross where Jesus paid for the penalty of sin. And three days later, as he rose from that grave, Jesus was not only providing a way for human beings to have their broken relationship with their creator fixed, but Jesus was actually breaking the curse that sin unleashed on creation, and he was allowing the beginnings of the new creation to start bubbling up among us right now. Probably C.S. Lewis's most famous book is his children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've ever read the book, if you've ever seen the movie, if you've ever watched the play, you'll remember that there is an eternal winter going on. Okay, it's just snow, it's cold, it's miserable, and there's an eternal winter. But when Aslan arrives on the scene, there's just even whispers about him. Aslan is the Christ character. As soon as he arrives on the scene, what happens to winter? It begins... To melt. and all of a sudden shrubbery begins to come back out. and it's, it's a, a picture of creation itself coming back to life with the advent of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now let's summarize this. Let's close. to every single person who has a small view of Jesus. Yes, he's an important historical figure. He's a good man. He's a moral luminary, etc. Colossians 1:15 through20, aggressively awakens in us a sense of the grandeur and the majesty of who he is. He's the creator and sustainer of all things and the one in whom God's entire cosmic plan is enacted. In Jesus, God is reconciling all of creation back to himself. And family, here's the real kicker. In Jesus, God is reconciling all of creation back to himself including you, if you can believe it. The peace that the cross of Christ makes includes peace between God and sinners like me and you. Next week, we're going to look exactly at how this reconciliation applied to the Colossians, how it applies to us. But the point for today is this. Jesus of Nazareth who is right now sustaining the entire universe, is big enough to reconcile all of creation back to God. And yet at the same time, he's not so big that he overlooks you. He sees you right now. He knows exactly where you are. He knows where you've been. He's aware of your entire life experience and the entire span of your life. And he's not just aware But he's concerned and he cares. Because did you know that we as people are in a very real sense, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. Because we in Genesis 1 are called those who are made in the image of God. And so deep in the heart of God, what was happening at the incarnation 2,000 years ago was that God was in his love pursuing you. And the image of the invisible God came to rescue image bearers of God who had gone sideways. Christ's cross was meant to make peace for us. Here's Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it through faith, by trusting in this Jesus that we're talking about today and saying, like the Colossians needed to say, I'm not going to look anywhere else to find God. I'm not going to look anywhere else to find spiritual maturity or growth or meaning or purpose. I'm going to Jesus for that. With that kind of faith, the Bible says you have peace with God. That reconciliation happens That separation no longer exists because of the work that Christ accomplished for us 2,000 years ago. So, some of you are go-getters. Some of you are A-type personalities. You're list people. And you want to leave church with a list of application. What do I have to go do this week, Pastor Daniel? The answer is this. The application from this sermon is worship. And if you are an A-type person, you're like, there needs to be some more. I can do that in like the next five minutes. But you just got to get comfortable with the fact that oftentimes the application from God's Word is just worship. Just learn to rest. Just learn to sit in awe of who God is. Sit in awe of who your Savior Jesus Christ is. Just worship. That's the application. So let's pray and let's worship our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.